Hello and welcome back to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, dangling over a computer terminal. Very elegantly so, I might add. Why, thank you, thank you. I've practiced. Clearly. Well, we're here continuing our journey into the first Mission Impossible film. You've all been asking for it. We're finally here. We're talking about Mission Impossible. Are you happy, folks? Well, we hope you are. And we have a very special guest to ring in the first Mission Impossible film. Cam, who do we have joining us? Yes, we are talking to Academy Award-winning editor Paul Hirsch, who edited the first Mission Impossible, as well as Ghost Protocol, and also some other movies you may be familiar with, say Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and a whole handful of classic Brian De Palma films. So um, this is one titan of the industry we have on the show today. Absolutely. I couldn't think of a better person to have on the show to talk all about mission and much, much more. So without further ado, Cam, roll the interview. And joining us now on the show, I, a man who I think I could list his credits for a very long time, but I'll keep it to this. He is an Academy Award winning editor. He has worked on films that you know and love. Mission Impossible, Star Wars, Ferris Bueller, you name it, he's been a part of it. And he's also just recently brought out his memoir a long time ago in a cutting room far, far away. Joining us on the show, I'm pleased as punch, Mr. Paul Hirsch. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here, sir. I, I, your list of credits, I, I am astounded by uh, when I was, I think, initially contacted you by email. I was like, wow, this guy has been a part of my life for a very long time and uh, i i feel like i i was writing my questions early for this and i just thought like i don't know where to start almost you know like it's uh, where do you start i guess that's probably where your memoir comes in there as well that's a a good place to start but where i like to start these chats is getting a little know a little bit more about you paul what interested you in the first place in, in sort of getting into filmmaking where did that that passion start for you well um I attended university in New York at Columbia University, and it was during the Vietnam War. And um, I did not agree with the uh, intention of the war, did not support the war, nor did I want to get killed. And, <laughs> excuse me, one of the ways you could avoid the draft was to have a student deferment. Okay. So um, after college, uh, at that time, most of the uh, most of my classmates were either going on to law school or medical school or business school. I didn't want to do any of those, and uh, I, I had always wanted to. I was always interested in the arts. I had always wanted to do something connected with the arts in some way, and I applied to and was accepted by the Columbia School of Architecture, and. Um, because of failing some math courses in my early years, didn't have quite enough credits to graduate, and I needed to, a few more points to uh, to qualify. And I discovered a uh, program in Paris, a French language program, that would give me the requisite points. And uh, I went over there for six weeks, and we had classes from nine in the morning till noon. The rest of the day, we were on our own. And there I was on the left bank and walking around, I would see movie theaters showing American movies. And they would say, Raoul Walsh Film Festival. And I thought, who is Raoul Walsh? And they would say, uh, um, 
you know, uh, various other directors would be on the marquee. Uh, uh, Howard Hawks Film Festival. And I thought, who's Howard Hawks? And I started going to these movies. And I, uh, this was in the in 1966, and it was sort of a decade in which the French New Wave had been happening, and Godard, Truffaut were making their films. And um, my generation of students is very interested in this. And um, I uh, was surprised to see how much respect the French critics gave to American directors who uh, here in the States were considered just to be uh, sort of studio um, apparatchiks. They were not regarded as artists. And uh, I started looking at films in a different way at that point. And there was a festival of Orson Welles films at the Cinémathèque uh, while I was there. And I went, to see, I went on a Monday to see Citizen Kane. I had heard the title, but I, I had no idea what it was about or anything else about it. And uh, it was quite an atmosphere. The, the hall was packed and the film was not subtitled in English. I'm fairly certain that not everyone in that room spoke English. But I think they went to see the mise-en-scene and the lighting and the cinematography and the editing and the music and so forth. And um, they were real, you know, film enthusiasts. And of course, when I got to the end of the film, I was just blown away. Um, I had no preparation for that. And it was just an extraordinary experience. And I went back the next night and I saw the Magnificent Ambersons. Then on Wednesday, I saw The Lady from Shanghai. Thursday was A Touch of Evil. And Friday they were showing, uh, I think it was Othello or Macbeth, I forget which, and Wells himself was going to appear in person and you couldn't get near the place, I couldn't get in. So um, that sort of took, occupied a certain place in the back of my mind. And I came back to the United States and I started architecture school in the fall. And it became pretty clear to me uh, rather quickly that uh, architecture and I were not a perfect fit. There was, um, it was just too, uh, too dry. And I was also facing another four years for another bachelor's degree, which just seemed like too much school for me. I, I was ready to go out into the world. So I, um, I got a uh, deferment on medical grounds and I was free to pursue my life. And I got a job um, I was, I had visited a friend who was editing a, a film in the Columbia, uh, area. He had moved a, an editing bench into his apartment. He had a moviola and the various, um, tools of the trade. And, uh, I visited him and it was the first time I'd ever seen a moviola. And in that era, there was no such thing as domestic, uh, videotape. The only way you could see a moving image in 1966 was to see it on TV and in the cinema. That was it. And there was no such thing as pause. There was no such thing as fast forward or rewind. And here was this machine where you could uh, go forward or you could stop. You could go backwards. And it just seemed like an extraordinary uh cool thing and you could stop on a frame and look at each of these photographs there's one photograph after another 24 and every second it was just um 
it just seemed very cool. I didn't know anything about editing, but I was attracted to the tools of the trade and uh, I decided I wanted to pursue that. And um, I got a job through a friend who's, uh, who had a relative who had a, an industrial film company and they would film uh, car races. Today, they would be NASCAR. They didn't have NASCAR in those days, but it was stock car races. <laughs> Excuse me. And they would send out 10 cameramen and they would shoot the race. And then the editors would cut it together into sort of a 20 minute film with narration. And at the end, they would add a tag for a company. It would say, buy Goodyear tires or buy um, Firestone or, or uh, STP engine additive or, you know, whatever it was. And they would sell these films to the various companies who would use them at their sales conventions. So my job was to deliver packages around town. And I would take the cut work prints from the office and take them over to the negative cutter. And I would pick up from the negative cutter, the cut negative and take it over to the lab. And the lab would print from the cut negative. And then I would pick up the prints from the lab and bring them back to the office, mount them on reels and ship them out to whoever was they were intended for. So after, in my second week, I think it was, one of the uh, negative cutters who um, I was visiting offered me a job as an apprentice. And uh, I went back to the office and there was an editor whom I'd sort of begun to befriend. I hadn't been there long enough to befriend him. But um, I said to him, well, what do you think? I mean, he said, well, you'd be handling film, you know, instead of packages. And I thought, well, that made sense. So after two weeks, I gave two weeks notice <laughs> and I left uh, Dynamic Films and went to work for uh, this negative cutter. And I worked for him for about six months and learned the whole technical end of the business, how negatives prepared for printing and what you have to do, what editors have to do in order to, you know, prepare the negative and uh, why, why you have to drop frames between cuts and things that are now, you know, sort of obsolete and irrelevant. But um, it prepared me for understanding what went on in the editing room to a certain degree. Uh, after six months, I had stopped learning and um, the, the man I was working for was a screamer. So I thought, I, 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 don't, I don't need this. And so, <laughs> so I quit. And uh, I got a job as an assistant editor, even though I wasn't an assistant editor, but I, I faked it, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, went to work for this guy who was working at a trailer house. They were making trailers for MGM and United Artists. And they had been doing radio spots um, up, to, up to that point. And uh, they had just branched into trailers and the, uh, the editor they hired needed an assistant. So uh, I went to work for him as an assistant editor and they kept getting busier and busier. And after a while, uh, he couldn't handle all the work. He started uh, giving me some of the things, the, the less challenging tasks to me. They had a 10 minute featurette. A featurette was a documentary about the making of a film. Mm -hmm. They had made a 10 minute uh, featurette about the Thomas Crown affair with Steve McQueen and in a way, I believe. And they wanted a three and a half minute version of it. So uh, I cut it down to three and a half minutes and they liked that. So then they gave me another one to do from scratch. 
on uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Right, yeah. So I did the featurette for that. And then um, they started giving me uh, trailers to cut. And uh, that was it. I started cutting trailers for about a year. During that time, my brother had secured a job as a low-level um, executive at Universal Pictures in New York who was uh, tasked with finding writing and directing talents. And young filmmakers in New York would come to him with projects looking for financing. And one of the directors who came to him looking for backing from Universal was Brian De Palma. And my brother and he came up with an idea for a film and Universal rejected it. So they decided to make it on their own. My brother had a two week uh, vacation coming and they shot the film during the two weeks and uh, Brian edited it himself and then when it was done they needed a trailer for it so they came to me to cut the trailer which is how I met Brian and he and I hit it off and they, the film was sort of a minor success it won the uh, Silver Bear at Berlin that year and they got the financing for a sequel to be entitled Son of Greetings. But um, we changed the title. That was my first. So Brian invited me to cut the film. And uh, that was my first film. I was 23 years old and I didn't know anything. Right. But I went into it with the confidence of the ignorant. <laughs> I can do this. I, I know I could cut a feature. Sure, I can do that, you know. I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, so that was my first experience. And then uh, the first five films I cut were all for Brian. He was the only director who offered me any work. Um, and then after or during the fifth film that I cut for Brian, um, I was offered another job to join um, a friend of his had done a film that was kind of in trouble. And they brought me in to help out, and that was Star Wars. Right. And sorry, I just have to interrupt. I have a question just about your movie trailer period. You were working at United Artists MGM. Yeah. This is a question we've kind of actually uh, happened upon in the past, sometimes with directors who worked in a similar field. Did you ever work on a James Bond trailer during that time period? No. Oh, uh, okay. To be precise, I was working for an independent company whose client were clients were MGM and United Artists. Fair enough. Okay. And then with De Palma, what do you think it was that like made you two click so well? Like what sensibilities or was it influences or what made you two of you su such an effective team? I don't know. It's just personality. I think, you know, uh, what makes you click with another person? It's, it's, uh, it's hard to say. Mm -hmm. And so much of his work, is driven by like a love of Hitchcock. Was that a case with you or with, you know, Hitchcock's editor, George Tomasini? Was there any influence on you there? Um, no, I, you know, I, I've given some talks lately. And one of the questions I asked uh, audiences to think about is this, it, would you say that editing is an invention or is it a discovery? Right think that it is a discovery that was facilitated by an invention so that um, the invention of film made us discover that the 
the mind could comprehend a succession of images and interpret them as a story. And this is an ability that was unknown because it had never been presented to anybody before. But once the invention was made, then the discovery could be made subsequently. Mm -hmm. So the influence was, um, it's funny, Walter Murch and I had the same experience where we weren't instructed by anyone, but we discovered it on our own by trying things. I call it trial and success rather than trial and error. I would try something and I go, oh, that works. That's interesting. <laughs> and uh, so uh, it was really the influence is the feedback you get from your wor own work. Mm. Where if you do it well, you know it, and if you do it wrong, you know it. Um, so that was the influences. I liken the process to uh, the games they used to have in newspapers called "What's Wrong with This Picture," where they would show a picture and you'd say, you know, you'd, the game was well. There's there's a cow on the roof, you know, or the 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 car has five wheels or the, you know the dog has three legs or whatever you know you, you find the things that are wrong with the picture and that's what cutting a movie is like you watch what you've done and you say what's wrong with this picture uh this goes too slowly this goes too fast this is in the wrong place this is confusing this is boring whatever your reaction is to what you're watching so it's it's a process that relies heavily on intuition and instinct and um, so the, the question of influence is, uh, I wouldn't link it to a particular editor, although I have admired particular editors, but I think in the process of watching films, you see things that other editors have done and you think, oh, I like that, I'm gonna try that. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating is that because film is so international, you can be influenced by things that you see in Korean films or, or in, uh, you know, German films or whatever. So uh, I think editors and filmmakers see each other's films and there's a, there's a cross uh, fertilization of ideas that goes on uh, internationally. And, uh, and in fact, when, you know, when sound came in, that was really crippling for the for the internationalism of films because up to that point, silent films you could just pop in any language card, and that's how Chaplin became Charlie Chaplin became the most famous person in the world because his films were you know distributed universally. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the most famous figures of the 20th century, uh, and then of course when sound came in. It, it limited the appeal because everything had to be translated and dubbed and or subtitled or whatever. So it's, it's a different experience. Um, yeah, I think I lost the point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was going to uh, lead us in to um, Mission Impossible, but you kind of rather beautifully took us to Star Wars, which is something I was going to bring up it, it, when you were saying about getting connected with that after your f first few films with Brian De Palma. You mentioned it was having a bit of trouble. What, and and it had a bit of you know Star Wars A New Hope as it's now known. It had a bit of a troubled upbringing. What were you tasked with when you were brought in to to, to help on the film? Well, I was the fourth editor hired on the film. Uh, the original editor uh, was an English editor who was let go when principal photography ended, and George and Marshall Lucas left 
the, the UK for the United States. And um, Marsha uh, didn't want to work on the film originally, but uh, she jumped in because uh, she saw the need and George really needed her. And they had hired a San Francisco editor named Richard Chu, who was already working on the film. So he and Marsha were working together and uh, recutting the work that had been done by the English editor, which was so unsatisfactory. And they realized rather quickly that they needed more help. That the two of them, it was just too big a job for the, just the two of them. So that's when I was asked to come on. I had to finish Carrie before I was available. So I joined, uh, I joined them at the end of September of that year, 76. And the three of us worked together for three months, October, November, December. And at the end of December, my deal was up. I was hired to the end of the year. And Marsha came to speak to me and I thought she was gonna say, listen, you've been a great help. Thank you very much. Goodbye and good luck. Mm. But instead she said, um, Martin Scorsese's editor has passed away and Marty needs me to cut New York, New York. Mm. And um, George wants to finish the picture with just one editor and he wants it to be you. So I said, oh, I was surprised because I thought because Richard had been hired before me, his job, you know, was past the end of the year, but it was not. It was the same deal I had. So uh, George shows me and, and I stayed on. And then I was the editor for the subsequent five months until the picture came out. And eventually I had, I had a chance to, you know, sort of go over every scene and sort of run it through my typewriter, as it were. Right. And... That movie, you know, you hear so much about kind of these legendary screenings where George Lucas showed it to his friends and they were all kind of like, you're in trouble. I was just curious, were you at any of those screenings? Yeah, well, there was one. It was, it was the director's screening, it was called. Yeah. I was there. And I, I think, you know, the reports are uh, inaccurate. Some, some felt, you know, he was in trouble. And you have to understand also that when we showed it to them, it was in extremely rough shape. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have many of the uh, ILM uh, special effects yet. And all the exterior of the spaceships were indicated by stand-in uh, shots that were borrowed from World War II fighter jet, uh, fighter plane dramas. And some of them were actual documentary footage from the Second World War. It was all black and white footage of uh, Japanese zeros and... and uh, American fighter planes and so forth. And it's all South Pacific uh, kind of black and white footage. So you'd have, you know, one of the Imperial uh, you have a, or a rebel uh, in a cockpit and you cut to a, a black and white exterior of a, of a propeller plane, <laughs> you know, and that was meant to be the exterior of the ship. And then, so, you know, in, in all fairness, to see a film in such a rough shape uh, it's very hard. Um, it's usually not a good idea to leave anything to the imagination. Mm -hmm. And in that, in that phase of the process, a lot had to be left to the imagination just because we didn't have the shots. So, uh, but I think, you know, uh, I think Spielberg thought it was going to be fantastic. Uh, 
Brian, <laughs> Brian is a, a big tease and uh, he likes to kid around and he, he said, George, what is this force stuff? You know, what, uh, <laughs> what it, please, what is this force? Get rid of the force stuff, you know? So, uh, and then he said, you know, what, what, what's this tractor beam? What is that? So George explained what the tractor beam was. He said, oh, you mean the big magnet? Oh, I said, <laughs> big magnet. So anyway, you know, and he liked to needle, Brian likes to needle people. I, I always consider myself a human pincushion when I mm. work with him. Uh, he's, he's, you know, he's got a, a wonderful uh, sardonic personality. Anyway, so, but whenever, you know, what everyone agreed on was that the prologue, as it was written at that time, needed rewriting. Mm. So that was the main thing that came out of that screening. But other than that, it was just a question of polishing and finishing and and uh, addressing issues that we already knew were an issue, you know, were a problem. And there was a period of reshooting where we picked up additional shots that we had, you know, determined to be necessary through our editing work. Uh, shots of the land speeder, there's some additional shots of uh, the R2 in the canyon when he's captured. And uh, there was some, uh, George was unhappy with the cantina sequence and reshot the all the uh, the aliens in the in the cantina, so um, there was a lot. But uh, yeah, no, I thought the you know everyone was very supportive. Mm -hmm. uh, Scorsese was supposed to be there, but we got word that he had an asthma attack and couldn't come. But I think it was later determined that he was afraid he wouldn't like it, so he didn't want to come and and uh, you know be the skunk in the garden party. So right. Well, that's very yeah polite then um I, I am curious you know when you finish your edit and you've seen you know the finished product how confident are you in the film versus obviously the explosion of popularity that follows well i i felt confident about star wars uh, but you know subsequently in my later career i had the experience of being very confident going into a preview and discovering that it was not at all not at all <laughs> Uh, reality-based confidence you know but um but at that time i you know uh, george said to me we're going to preview the film and i asked marcia to get a week away from marty so she could help with changes after the preview and i had done five pictures with brian at that point and we had never previewed the picture mm. it's not part of my experience so i said well you know what what would what, what would we change he said, previews always mean changes. I said, okay. So we previewed the picture and the response was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. I went outside afterwards and I said to George, I said, what do you think? He says, well, I guess we'll leave it alone. <laughs> and the rest is history. The rest is history. So, because uh, we've been over, by that time, we've been over it with a fine tooth comb again and again and again and again. So. And when you edited Empire. Yes. Was it easier, like having kind of created the Star Wars language in the first one, was Empire an easier project or was it also pretty difficult to figure out? Well, it's always easier to get it right in the first place than to recut somebody else's bad work, you know. So hmm. uh, sometimes you're looking for two frames to, you know, to add to a, to a cut. Something's going to cut short. You have to look for the trim and add it on, and, you know. So it's easier to get it right in the first place. And 
uh, I was in control because I was the only editor on the picture. So in that sense, it was easier. And plus it was a different director. So it was different, uh, um, you know, it was a different ball game. I mean, Kirshner was a very experienced director and, and uh, brought a lot to the film. And the film has a much more polished look, I would say. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the first film invented everything. So when people ask me, what's your favorite, you know, I have to always give credit to the first film because that's where everything came from. Right. Were you ever talked to about doing Return of the Jedi? I was talked to by saying, (laughs) I had a conversation with Gary Kurtz and he said, uh, George has hired uh, hired, um, uh, Richard Marquand to direct the film. And the Star Wars films employed upwards of 800 people on the cruise and so forth. And Marquand had requested that he be allowed to hire two people on the film, his cinematographer and his editor. And George agreed. So that was it. Right. And at the time, I, you know, I would have liked to do the third film as well, but, um, in retrospect, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's just me, but I, I don't think it stands up to the to the first two. I was just about to say, I think it, it, of all the films in the Star Wars universe, you could have touched. You touched the best two, um, and I don't, I don't know. Like, I, there are things that could be done with Jedi. I mean, what are your thoughts on Return of the Jedi? Could would you could you have changed anything with it from what you saw of the film? Um, I don't know. I mean. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people people ask me, you know, uh, I was asked recently, what's your favorite of the Star Wars films that you didn't work on? Mm. Yeah. And I thought, well, I only saw them once when they came out. So I don't really have any strong recollection of any of them. Uh, I think... Uh, I started watching Jedi, a little bit of Jedi recently, and I thought it just seemed silly to me. I, it just it sort of went off in an, in an odd direction right from the get-go. Uh, this sort of galley ship or something. Uh, <laughs> it's just... It, there's definitely uh, like a tonal pivot in Return of the Jedi. I, I did have one last Star Wars question before I think we move on to Mission Impossible. And that's sort of a post your involvement. And that's George Lucas sort of going back and and editing the films himself, basically adding in new effects and changing some scenes and bits and bobs. I don't know if you've ever seen the edited versions of the films, the special editions, I think is what they're called. But I mean, any thoughts on on sort of going a director going back and sort of reimagining films? Well, I think it's fine. You know, I mean, George was ahead of the technology when he made the first films and the technology finally caught up with what he wanted to do. And he was able to accomplish uh, his original idea. But my, my concern is that um, he did away with the old version. So it would be the special edition, but be also nice to have the original edition, which I don't think, um, I don't think they make available, although I don't, follow Star Wars developments very closely. So, Yeah, I think you're spot on. I don't think that they will ever be available, unfortunately. And they've been edited several times since as well, which I find I find crazy. There's a Laserdisc edition of the first film, which I think is the best 
quality uh, copy of the original cut. And uh, I happen to have that version. Nice. And I have a disc player as well. I bet they would both go fetch a, a pretty penny on eBay these days, <laughs> both of those things. The, disc, the player and the discs themselves, uh, especially your copy. But uh, this week we are talking about Mission Impossible. Yes. And I, I've just gone back and revisited it as well you know, for the for the episode. And I, I, a lot of questions about it. Now, I, I guess your involvement just comes from knowing Brian. Is that just a call he makes to ask you to come and do it with him? Where does it, the Mission Impossible story start for you? Uh, Brian had been chosen to direct the film. It was Tom Cruise's first production. Mm. He's a producer for the first time. And when... Um, when I went off to do um, uh, The Empire Strikes Back, Brian was preparing Dress to Kill in New York. And he said to me, who's going to cut Dress to Kill? My editor is going off. What am I going to do? <laughs> so, so I said, well, the best editor in New York that I know of is Jerry Greenberg. And Jerry had cut The French Connection. Yeah. And, um, and it is a fantastic, it was, a, he unfortunately passed away, but he was a fantastic editor whom I really respect and looked up to. He's about 10 years older than me. And uh, he was the first editor from New York ever to win an Oscar. So I foolishly recommended Jerry to Brian and he cut uh, Dress to Kill and any number of films after that. Mm. <laughs> I thought, well, that was dumb. You'll probably never get your job back. So um, I had done a number of pictures for Paramount when uh, Mission Impossible was planned, and mm. they liked me at the studio. I had done some successful films for them, uh, including um, uh, you know, Footloose and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. So they, they knew me and were, you know, you know they liked me. So uh, Brian had hired Jerry to cut Mission Impossible. Right. And there was a dispute at the studio between Cruz and whoever was the head of the studio at the time. They, they wanted to bring it out for Christmas. And Cruz wanted to bring it out in the spring, or the end of spring, for, play through the summer. So um, the studio won the argument. So I was hired. Brian called me. He said, we got to get this picture out fast. we got to do it really quickly. And uh, Jerry's already been hired, but, you know, we'd like you to come. I'd like you to come and be the second editor. I said, great. So that's how, I, that's how it was. Hmm. And this was such a different era for, like, adapting and known IP for the big screen. Were you and De Palma looking at the TV show at all? Or was it very much, no, no, that was its own thing. We are building the new cinematic version of Mission Impossible. Well, that's not my job anyway. That would be Brian's job. But were you like even looking at the show in terms of the rhythm of the, the film or anything? Like I say, you know, you, you follow your instincts based on the dailies. Mm -hmm. It's like I approach my work sort of like a dancer, you know, so you go to a dance and they start to play, you know, this is, this dates me, of course, this is not for you young guys, <laughs> but in old days you go to a dance and they would play uh, songs in different rhythms, you know, so... Mm -hmm. Uh, one would be a cha-cha, one would be a foxtrot, one would be a jitterbug or Charleston or whatever, you know. So you listen to the music, oh, okay, I know what to do, and sort of react to the music. And so 
That's my approach to dailies. I watch the dailies and I say, oh, I know what to do. I'll use this for that and I'll use that for this. And, you know, and you put it together. So uh, it's not, I'm not a film historian. I'm not a student of film. Uh, I'm a formerly practicing editor. Mm -hmm. Um, And you focus on what's in front of you. And you interpret what's given to you uh, through the lens of your own sensibility and your own instincts. Right. It has nothing to do with what went before, unless, unless it's something about the film inspires you to resort to something like with all the wipes that we used in Star Wars, mm. based on the idea that uh, the film itself was based on serials from the 30s uh, that played every Saturday. You, you know. Yeah. They used that technique rather liberally, so we used it to evoke that that nostalgia, you know, for the old films. Um, the great thing about Star Wars is that it took bits and pieces from all different kinds of films and chopped them up and made them into a fresh salad. You know, it was like you have the uh, Knights of the Round Table and you have uh, Tarzan films and you have Westerns and you have, you know, uh, aerial combat and, and, uh, Westerns, you know, you have all these different genres in one movie, sort of the result being that when you see Star Wars, you're not seeing a movie, you're seeing the movies mm-hmm. and, and everything evokes something that you're nostalgic about, but in a fresh way. So, uh, it's quite remarkable, actually. I didn't think we'd be talking about it 46 years later. Hmm, yeah, true. Well, with the the first mission film, at least we'll we'll, we'll touch on the second one shortly. You, you know, you're you've you by this point you mentioned some of the films you've done for Paramount. You'd also, of course, done Star Wars, won Academy Awards. Was the process of uh, editing uh, Mission Impossible anything different to what you'd done before? Anything stands out about the process to you looking back on it? Well, yeah, I mean, it was the first film that I did on computers. Okay. Uh, working on film up to that point. This was the first time I was venturing into the new tools. We were working on a system called Lightworks. And um, they, I, you know, they had some really uh, wonderful qualities, but they didn't survive because they didn't upgrade their, constantly upgrade their software. So, um, so that was new. Uh, I hired an assistant who was familiar with Lightworks to sit next to me. And I'd say, I want to do this. How do I do that? And he'd show me. And, uh, and you know, when you're putting a film together for the first time, you're only using about five or six different commands over and over and over. So once I learned how to do those few things, I was off and running. Uh, it didn't take me very long at all to, to figure out what to do. There was, a, you know, a, an image of an imaginary piece of film, mm-hmm. the image of what the film was, and it was an imaginary piece of film, an imaginary piece of soundtrack, and you can make an imaginary splice, and, you know, so it was all very uh, visually intuitive and uh, very easy to pick up. But uh, I remember that the, the uh, data storage was quite limited, so if I wanted to work on the next reel, they had to unplug real one and wheel it out and then bring in real two <laughs> plug in real two uh it just wasn't you know uh the capacity that we have today 
One of the things I find so impressive about the first Mission Impossible is that it's incredibly economical in its storytelling, but it's also like, I remember much was written at the time about it was a very complex story. I don't know that people would say that now in comparison to how um, complicated certain blockbuster films have become, but at the time it was, and your ability to balance a very propulsive action-driven story with a lot of details that really reward paying attention. I'm just curious, like how much of that was kind of found in the editing room, finding that balance versus just what was delivered and kind of having a guideline right up front? I'm not sure I understand the question. I guess what I mean is like, was there a strong sense of balancing sort of the propulsive action elements with like the more complex storytelling? Or was that something that was like difficult to figure out, like kind of the balance? No, I think, you know, what, what you see uh, is pretty much the design of the film. Um, we were sort of surprised that people were confused. Yeah. Uh, but I have a theory about that, which is that uh, three weeks prior to the release of Mission Impossible, Paramount put, a picture, put out a picture called Twister, which is one of the stupidest movies I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So, you know, uh, yeah. So the picture came out and the critics, you know, came to see Mission Impossible. was sort of that, it just, it had just been a few weeks earlier from the same studio. And I think they went into it thinking, oh, another blockbuster, you know, and they weren't really paying attention. I think they let their guard down and uh, then all of a sudden they, what, what, you know, and they're sort of behind the curve. I remember 10 year old kids saw Mission Impossible and they understood it fine. Mm -hmm. But I I think the critics were sort of caught off guard and, and uh, I mean, that's my theory. I don't know if it's true or not, but a lot of the reviews said this is really confusing. And um, I, I think what part of the confusion might have been around uh, a scene in the restaurant, the seafood restaurant with all the um, fish tanks. Mm-hmm. Cruz says, he has a line, he says, this whole thing was a mole hunt. And I think people didn't get that line. Mm. Or, Perhaps. Sure. Maybe, you know, if we had looped it and made it more, if we had, you know, I don't know. I mean, you do a lot of second guessing after people have criticized the film, but like I say, you know, uh, we understood it. <laughs> we thought people would understand <laughs> it. You know? And a lot of people did understand it. Um, but it got this, got this label of being confusing. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Keeping the lights on at Spy Hard's HQ ain't cheap. And frankly, nor is feeding the school of attack piranhas. So we need your help. Roger that, Scott. Only at the Spy Hard's Patreon can you gain access to exclusive shows like Agents in the Field, which tackles non-spy films starring your favorite spy icons, and The Debrief where we channel our inner solitaires and predict how the big spy movie news of today will impact tomorrow. So make like a Treadstone agent and activate your Patreon membership at patreon.com slash spyhards today. Cam, tell the people what we have in our sights this week. Well, Scott, our frightful Halloween festivities continue as we are looking at 1991's The People Under the Stairs. What happens when you cross Wes Craven? with a couple of Twin Peaks icons. Venture into the crawl space with us and find out. 
But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy chinks. Have you found with all of your De Palma um, collaborations that they were often a few years ahead of their time? Because a lot of them not necessarily warmly received critically. And now there's so much talk about why can't we make movies like that now? Yeah, definitely. Most definitely. I mean, uh, two of the films that we worked on and we had such high hopes for were complete disasters when they opened. Mm -hmm. One was Phantom of the Paradise, uh, which got the Daily News in New York used to give four stars is their highest rating. And I think they gave Phantom of the Paradise a half a star. Yeah. You know, the dismal flop at the box office when it opened. Uh, the picture opened in a theater in Paris and ran for 10 years. So, uh, and then for some reason, I don't know if you know this as a Canadian, but in uh, um, what's the, Winnipeg, Yes. Winnipeg is an annual uh, Phantom Palooza. They have a, a festival every year around Phantom of the Paradise. So, and that's, you know, 40 some odd, what is it? 1974, what is that? 50, how many years? 49 years later? Yeah. I actually so, yeah. did know that my. One of my best friend's husband grew up in Winnipeg, and The Phantom of the Paradise is his all-time favorite movie. He discovered it at those late-night screens, and one day he made me actually watch the movie. He gave, brought the DVD to work and made me watch it, and I fell in love with it as well. So, yes, uh, I actually do know someone who was uh, influenced by that Winnipeg popularity. Yeah, so that's there's that. And then uh, recently, or not that recently, in 2014, I guess it was, they had a 40th anniversary uh, cast and crew screening at the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood, and the the screening was sensational. The, the reaction, the crowd reaction, was everything we hoped for when it first came out, but never got. So mm. It was like delayed gratification. Forty years, we had to wait forty years for <laughs> for that. But it was, uh, yeah. I mean, and then the other film that's you know I would say stands out in that respect is Blowout, you know, which was considered a catastrophe when it opened and and now is considered the palmas best picture yep so um times change well the wonderful thing is that the release of a film is just its birth and some of them go on to have long lives and some you know become alcoholics and disappear and, <laughs> and others have very successful careers well speaking of uh speaking of ongoing um you did work on another Mission Impossible film yes. a few years later with Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, the fourth of the running franchise of seven, I think, at this point. Um, how did that come back to you? Because obviously it wasn't De Palma. It was Brad Bird running that production. How did that come back to you? Uh, and how did you get involved, I suppose? Well, the story that I heard was that uh, Brad Bird was presented with editors for... Uh, Ghost Protocol, and he met these editors, and he would look at the, or I don't know if he, he I don't know if he even met them. Um, he would look at their credits, and he'd say, "No, I don't like the way these films were cut. And they were all action editors." Mm. And um, he objected to the way action scenes had started to become 
edited, uh, and I have the same problem with them, that they become almost like, uh, you feel like you're watching a trailer for the scene as opposed to the scene itself. Sure. They don't respect time and, and space in a way that makes it believable. It just becomes, um, you know, a flurry of montage of action. You can't quite, quite make out what's going on. So he said to the post supervisor, he said, no, I, I want to cut like the way the first film was cut. So he said, well, I think that guy is still around. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's how it came to me. Well, I was just curious, you know, the first one you mentioned, that's Tom Cruise's first production he's overseeing. Did you notice a real difference coming back to the franchise with Tom Cruise being more seasoned at this point as a creative driver of this series? Well, yeah, I mean, um, of course. I mean, actually, the thing that surprised me most about Cruise was that he remembered me. When we met up in Prague on the second film, he greeted me very warmly, and I hardly remembered speaking to him at all on the first film, hmm. because Brian had a rule that stars and producers are not allowed in the editing room. Sure. So I said to him, Brian, Tom Cruise is the star and the producer of the picture. What are you going to do if he says he wants to come to the cutting room? And Brian said, he can screen the picture as much as he wants, as many times as he wants. He's not setting foot in the cutting room. Hmm. And he never did. So my contact with Tom was very occasional and brief. Mm -hmm. And uh, now it was 15 years later. And uh, he greeted me very warmly. And I was very surprised that he, you know, like I say, that he even remembered me. But I said, he said, uh, how are you? I said, I'm fine. But unlike you, I've changed in the last 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could say that to him now and it would still hold up. <laughs> he looked exactly the same. Well, you can't tell by what he looks like on screen because yeah. there's a lot of work that goes on in post to keep him youthful looking, you know. Don't ruin the illusion for me. Well, not just with Tom. It happens with other actors as well. Sure. Yeah. There's a company in L.A. called Lola who specialize in removing these, you know, these lines would be gone. I'm just going to write that down, Paul. Lola. Right. <laughs> I, I, I might need some help with that. Do they have a payment plan? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Layaway? Yeah. Um, but the, so the process of, of, of working with Brian, obviously something you practiced before, but had you worked with Brad Bird before at this point? And, and sort of what was that process like with him and feeling the film out and getting the final product with, in the second film? Well, it was very different. And it was Brad's first film, uh, first live action film. He was a brilliant, brilliant, and is a brilliant animator. And he, uh, his, his process was very different and alien to me. Mm. And uh, there were couple of things I had to get used to. We'd look at an action sequence together and he'd say, hang on, hang on, go back. I said, okay. He says, now just go one frame at a time. Like that. I said, a frame at a time? <laughs> he says, yeah. I said, I can't tell what I'm looking at a frame at a time. He said, well, I can't tell what I'm looking at if it's not a frame at a time. So I said, okay. <laughs> So we watched the, yeah. we would watch the sequence, 
a frame at a time. And uh, actually, I picked up some tips from him. He would he would say, "Go back, go back. That frame, take that frame out." And he'd take the frame out, and the action would go a little faster. And right. That's interesting, you know. And then uh, so I picked up some real tricks from him. But um, one of my concerns was that you know editors have to have uh, micro and macro points of view. So you have to zoom in and study a frame at a time. Mm -hmm. You also have to zoom out and look at the whole picture and see what the whole experience is because what you're presenting to an audience, you're not presenting scenes, you're presenting a two-hour experience. So you have to have that two-hour experience to know what it feels like to an audience. Mm -hmm. And I could not get Brad to look at the picture. Right. I said, let's run, let's run the picture. He said, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I, I, I want to work on, you know. So we were getting it to the point where we had to show the picture to J.J. Abrams, who was the producer. Mm -hmm. I said, Brad, we have to look at the picture. He says, I don't want to look at the picture. So I said, Brad, I need two hours this afternoon. I'm going to watch the picture because if I don't watch the picture, I'm not doing my job. So he said, okay, I guess I'll watch it with you. So he consented to watch the whole picture which is, you know, I think it's a real rookie mistake. Uh, there's a sort of a uh, canard going around in the industry that you should never, you know, that directors uh, are terrified to look at their at the rough cut because the rough cut is so, you'll feel so terrible after the rough cut that you don't want to have that experience, you know. So uh, it's a real rookie mistake. And... For the reason I just said, you have to have the whole experience to know what the audience is experiencing. Mm. So he agreed. He says that I'm going to watch it. So we started to watch it, and then he spent the whole time taking notes. So he would watch, and then he would write. And meanwhile, the picture is playing in front of him, and he's writing notes. But he, he missed half the picture. And um, George Lucas, by contrast, liked to look at a picture twice, look at the rough cut twice. He would say, okay, let's just watch it. No notes. Nobody take any notes. Just watch the movie. Keep your eyes on the screen. And then we'd break for lunch. And then we'd come back and we'd watch it a second time. And this time we could take notes because we knew what we had seen and uh, something we saw sparked a, you know, a reaction and we'd write it down. So that's a much more sensible approach. It's tedious, but there's a lot of tedium involved in editing. But it's a necessary step. Mm -hmm. Somebody said, what's the shortcut for making fruit salad? And the answer is, there isn't one. You have to cut every piece. So you can't shortcut the process by saying, okay, I'm not going to watch the, I'm not going to watch the rough cut. Mm -hmm. Mistake, big mistake. And you mentioned, uh, Tom Cruise not being allowed in the editing room for the first one, but did he get a bit of time? in Ghost Protocol in there with you and Brad? Yes. Okay. Yes, toward the end, he came in, JJ and Tom and Brad and uh, uh, Berkey. Um, I can't remember his real name. I just remember his, his nickname. Um, they would sit on the couch and I would, you know, we'd talk about things. Uh, I write about this in my book that my, you know, I would be the least powerful person in the room you know, Cruz and J.J. Abrams, Brad Bird. And because 
I had, I was the least threatening person in the room. I couldn't, I had no power to, to force any of my ideas, but because of that, I was able to suggest things that were, that they went for, you know? So, mm. uh, I realized that powerlessness has its own power that, uh, uh, there's an advantage in, in being able to be uh, uh, the least important person in the room. And is there any moment in either of the Mission Impossible films you edited that that was more your influence on how the scene was put together? And some like maybe a scene you could point to and be like, "This is this is this is Paul's work right here. This is this is what I've perfected and created." Well, that happens in every film. I mean, uh, what we're doing is making choices. Mm. Uh, making decisions and to the extent that the uh, director endorses our choices is a measure of our uh, satisfaction sure my, mm. my satisfaction to the extent that the the you know the director looks at the scene and says looks great you know then i feel yeah. like my job and i take great pride in that and i can point to a number of scenes in different films where the director saw what I'd done and said, great, you know, there's no need to, to fuss around it. You know, it's fine. Uh, and think and the one I can think of in, uh, um, let me see, in, in Ghost Protocol, there's a scene where, you know, they're impersonating, they're, they're making the, the, uh, the switch. They're, it's the I can't remember the details. I haven't seen it since it came out. So, uh, you know, that Cruz uh, and um, is in one apartment and uh, with Paula, I believe. Yeah. And then Simon and uh, Jeremy are in the other apartment. Is that the one? They're yeah. one above the other. This is this the one? This is the bit on the Burj Khalifa in that big tower block. Is that that? Is that the scene? Yes. yes. Yeah. Hope you can make this sound coherent when you cut it together. Oh, this is staying exactly as this is. This is gold. That scene where I cut between one apartment and the other, the door sure. opens. Now you're in the other apartment, and the door closes. Now you're back in the first apartment, and that all intercut between the two apartments, one above the other, uh, was never touched after my first cut. So, um, but you know, it's like editors are in a way is sort of our process is sort of like an actor, you know. An actor, Al Pacino, will do 10 takes of a line, uh, and each one is his choice, um, how to play it. He'll read it 10 different ways because he's incapable of repeating himself just because he's an artist and he can't, he can't do the same thing twice. It, against, it goes against something in him. Mm. So the director has to make the choice between I endorse that choice, but not that one. So that's what we do in, in in editing. We make choices, and the director endorses it or doesn't endorse it. You know, mm -hmm. it's the same kind of uh, relationship creatively. Now, I've I've got I could probably keep asking you questions about Mission Impossible all the live long day, but I'm conscious of your time, so I've got a couple of quick fire questions to sort of wrap us up, Paul. If that works for you. The first one is, I mentioned it off the top, your memoir came out a couple of years ago now, a, a long time ago in a cutting room far, far away. But what inspired you to actually want to put that memoir together? Well, um, I was in Vancouver and my wife was in L.A. 
And um, I had been visiting the floor and chatting with actors and producers and so forth. And I would tell these stories and I would get some good laughs. And I, on the weekend, I was alone because my wife was back home and I was bored. I had nothing to do. And I thought I should really write these stories down because they're pretty good stories. And uh, so who knows, maybe someday I'll make, make a book out of them or something, you know. So that's what I did. I started writing the stories down. And at that time, I made uh, a list of each of the pictures I'd worked on and little um, notes about anecdotes, uh, things that happened that I remembered that were good stories. And, and uh, so I made this outline. And then um, I worked on it for the next 18 years. I started in 1999. Wow. And I finished the first draft in 2017. But there were years, I mean, it would go two or three years without my working on it at all. Hmm. And as I got older and less attractive to the business, my periods of employment grew less lengthy and my periods of unemployment grew more lengthy. And uh, I had more and more time to work on the book. And I finally finished it in 2017. Hmm. So, and then uh, I... I got an agent and then I worked on it. I worked on the editing for another year or so mm. uh, of the book with a very good editor, a uh, woman named Jenny Shute. Yeah, well, we'll have links in the show notes below for everyone. Go click on that and grab a copy. I did want to ask, and uh, it's kind of a, it might be a, a, not particularly a, a quick fire question, but maybe it could be brief. But of all these films that we've listed that you've worked on and plenty more that we haven't even spoken about, is there one when you were in that editing room putting it together, you were like, this is magic. This is going to be the next big thing. I mean, maybe that was Star Wars. Maybe that was Mission. Maybe that was Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But was there one where you were just sat there and go, this is, this is magic right here? Um, well, there are always scenes in each film that I, that I try to get off on. You know, I mean, uh, I really enjoyed cutting Ray. I think Ray doesn't get as much credit as it deserves. Mm -hmm. I love I love editing to music. I, there are scenes in Footloose. Uh, you know, I there's I never make a judgment about the whole film. I mean, that's not true. I I know when I'm working on something that's not the greatest. You know, but you have to work and you have to make a living. So um, you take what's available to you at the time. But yeah, there, there are films I get excited about. I, you know, I wouldn't say that I know that this picture is going to be a success because you never know that. But yeah, there's, there's always uh, some magic. I did a film that was not successful called The Fighting Temptations, and there's innumerable uh, sequences in that I think are just fantastic. Well, okay, what we'll do, I'll throw to the last question, and this is one we've asked every single person we've ever had in the show. Putting you in the hot seat now, Paul. What is your favorite spy movie of all time? That's a tough one. I was going to say uh, North by Northwest, but I find that sometimes when I go back to old films, they don't stand up to my memory of them, especially with Hitchcock. You remember the highlights, but you don't remember the, the boring bits in between. Um, to be fair, I think my answer would probably be one of Hitchcock's spy films. I think they, personally, I think they still, they still rock now. Yeah, I think Saboteur is pretty great also. Yeah. I can't say I actually watched North by Northwest just last night. Um, holds up beautifully. Just total coincidence, but yeah. Okay, I'll go with that. 
it's a beautiful answer. I think it's it's, it's probably in my top five. So I, I can't fault you for that. Well, Paul, it's been an absolute, a wonderful experience speaking to you, sir. Um, I Again, I could keep picking your brain for another four hours, but I, I'm sure you have a, a lovely day ahead of you. So I don't want to take up any more time. But uh, yeah, thank you for your time, Paul. After four hours, you'd be picking through crumbs. <laughs> but I'd still be picking. <laughs> no, Paul, it's been absolutely wonderful speaking to you. I wish you all the best. And uh, thank you for your time, sir. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat with Mr. Paul Hirsch. Again, I want to thank Paul for taking the time to speak with us. And if you want to hear more of his stories, we recommend you go and check out his memoir a long time ago in a cutting room far, far away. There's a link in the show notes below. But Cam, throwing it over to you. I mean, what a chat. What a guy. Yeah, like we've talked to many luminaries uh, from the history of film and television. And Mr. Hirsch has had such a profound impact on my life. I was a Star Wars kid. Star Wars is really the first movie that ever kind of drew me into the art form. Mm -hmm. I would say like early Disney stuff, but it was discovering Star Wars when my parents showed it to me when I was like four years old and would watch it over and over again and just fell in love with that universe. So, you know, like I grew up worshiping and studying those movies to pieces and Brian De Palma films have played a huge role in my life as an adult where... All of De Palma's early stuff are movies I revisit constantly. And it was fascinating to talk to someone who played such a key role in creating these absolutely visionary works that, as I mentioned in the interview, Star Wars aside, a lot of them not appreciated as much in their time, but now are seen as like legendary films. Are you saying you were the original Star Wars kid? I was not the original. That would imply that I saw it in theaters, but uh, you know, I saw it on... TV or something like that at four years old. But I was, I guess, maybe the first generation of children who were brought up on Star Wars. Sure. I, I was definitely a, a generation after you for that. But I, again, I, I, I had the same upbringing with Star Wars. I, I remember seeing all of the original in theaters before Phantom Menace came out and experiencing them on the big screen and at, at quite a young age. And just being blown away by them. But I had already watched them on VHS by that point and, and knew and loved them. But also, like, I, I liked films like Ferris Bueller. I think that's just, it's a film I go back to often as like a perfect 80s comedy. And it's it, it's interesting to know that, like, all these roads came from Brian De Palma films. All these, you know, that, that's where he started. And all this led into Mission Impossible, the film we're talking about this week. And it, it goes to show the pedigree, that's something we've spoken about a little bit, but the pedigree behind mission impossible especially this first one having brian de palma as the director was a a, a masterstroke but again you know having paul and the rest of the team there as well i couldn't think of a better pair of set of hands to guide this uh, franchise from tv to the big screen no and it's such a confident film mm -hmm. like for a movie that's going to launch a franchise i don't know at the time if they were thinking this is going to be a seven film eight film franchise they were hoping. but they wanted a they were hoping, but they wanted a big, you know, blockbuster film that audiences would get excited about. And the movie is so confident in its vision. And they have, you know, minus little tweaks to character and tone, they've stuck pretty true to the vision of what this original Mission Impossible was throughout the run, the way it balances kind of um, complicated, almost comic book spy stories with like these really intricate involving action sequences like mm. the balance and tone of those sorts of um sequences is pretty well set up in that first movie and has continued onwards 
Absolutely. But let's let's talk about Paul's contribution to some of the things we discussed. I mean, hearing some of the revelations, just, just talking about perhaps Star Wars first, because that's how the conversation started. Uh, you know, we were talking off air before the interview started, and you were sort of telling me the details of this fabled director's meeting screening of Star Wars before it was fully edited. And I'd never heard of it until you told me, but it, it's a fascinating story. But actually hearing it from someone who was actually in the room must have been a dream come true for you. Yeah, this was like Hollywood lore. You hear people talk about this screening. I think George Lucas has told anecdotes. Pretty sure Brian De Palma has told anecdotes about it as well. And to actually have that eyewitness account of someone who was there, I could actually explain the experience of that screening. I mean, this was one for the history books, folks. Uh, This was a very amazing story to have on the podcast. And just to hear that someone's ribbing George Lucas. Yeah. Like I'm all for that. The I, I'm not a big fan of what he did with the franchise towards the end of his tenure with Star Wars, but yeah, I, I, I'm I'm glad I'm glad Brian De Palma was uh, sticking it to George. Well, this was like the movie brat era. I believe that was the nickname for those directors, where it was like De Palma, Lucas, Spielberg, Scorsese, Ron Howard. They were like this generation of directors who were all brought up watching films mm. and were like the ones kind of changing the industry. They were the ones that very much shaped the way that big budget filmmaking was going, often in very experimental projects. All of that early De Palma stuff was pretty bold and daring and now is the sort of thing that you see a lot of filmmakers working in mainstream film aspire to, to try to achieve. Uh, They were the people very much shaping the popular entertainment that was going to come. And just to hear about, I mean, these guys would have been pretty young. And the idea of like Brian De Palma ribbing George Lucas about this silly space movie he's made, like it's so much... What's tractor beams? What's that about? Yeah, it's so much fun with like the context now of knowing what Star Wars has become in our culture. Yeah, as we're like surrounded by Lego Star Wars everywhere and everything, we can't escape Star Wars now. I'm I'm sure Disney's listening. Um, They've announced three new movies. Like Star Wars is huge business now. It's an entire industry. And once upon a time, it was a very concerned George Lucas showing, you know, a very rough cut of this movie to a group of friends who were, I guess, concerned. Yeah. For sure. And, and like hearing how Paul was brought in after a few unsuccessful edits to the film were made to try and punch it up along with a couple of other people. And then he was the sort of the final editor on the film and of course went on to win the Academy Award for it as well. Yeah. And he shared that Oscar with Marshall Lucas and Richard Chu. Um, and I mean, yeah, like Star Wars really changed the game in terms of blockbuster action storytelling And, you know, Paul comes across very humble when he talks about his craft and his achievements in films over the many years that he worked in Hollywood. But I mean, it's a little bit like when we talk to Gary Powell, someone who is also very modest about, you know, the productions he's done and saying, you know, look, I had an amazing team. We got a lot of cool things done. But when you kind of track the filmographies, you go, boy, they um, happen to be there at these kind of like the string of very pivotal films that changed the way we watch movies. Yeah, I mean, you move on from sort of the Star Wars discussion you talk about, which we didn't really get into, but the string of like what I would call seminal 80s films, everything from like going back to the beginning, like you've got Footloose, Ferris Bueller, Planes, Trains, Automobiles, uh, Steel Magnolias is a film I hear people yep. talking about quite a lot. Uh, 
uh, Blowout, you mentioned at the start of the 80s. He did stuff on the Creep Show. I think it's a segment from Creep Show he did. Like, he was a part of the 80s experience for many people. Yeah, a lot of people's favorite movies were edited by Paul Hirsch. And actually, a lot of these movies that you mentioned were standards on TV. Mm. So you had a lot of people that grew up in this particular era seeing these movies replayed on TV again and again. So they internalized them in a way that I feel like is not as frequent now just because of streaming and the number of options people have. People don't have these touchstone movies that just get absorbed over and over again. But that's very much the case with a lot of his, especially 80s work and also 70s. Well, except Morbius, obviously. Obviously. The touchstone of cinema, as it is now. Of course. Uh, yes, of course. Um, I, I, I suppose then, moving on to our topic this week, Mission Impossible. And, and again, like it's clear that Paul is a man who really loved his work. That's why he wrote about it afterwards as well. And he, he just sort of gets stuck in with the craft. He has a, obviously has a good shorthand with his director and just gets the job done. But like hearing stories about Tom Cruise being banned from the cutting room yeah. from him and Brian De Palma, like I, I just love that idea of, of Brian De Palma and Paul just sort of holding little Tom Cruise back away from the door. And he's like, oh, let me at him. Let me at him. And they couldn't do it. I, I just love that idea. And also it's interesting, you know, when we've talked to various people who work behind the scenes on films, like they all have a different creative process in how they deal mm. with the job at hand and like to hear... Paul talk about the intuitive approach to editing and the way he decides on how the film should be shaped, what the ultimate result is. It's very much like a process that feels very individual to him. And I mm -hmm. really enjoyed hearing him just talk about how that works because sometimes that's a hard thing to communicate to people. Sure. And everyone has a different way of doing it. And so I think he did a just fabulous job of underlining essentially what he does as an editor on these films all very different films too, and how he kind of arrives at a final result. And and also just interesting knowing that him nor Brian De Palma really looked to the TV show for inspiration. Yeah. Like it was, but like for me, as someone who's watched a few episodes of the show now, I can see it, especially in the beginning, like the, the beginning mission that, that goes awry, I can see a lot of the TV show in that. Yeah. To me, like there is a similar energy and vibe um, but I also understood like it was an era where you didn't necessarily, um, look at the original IP as much for inspiration. Like nowadays they would be pouring over it because they want to have Easter eggs for the fans and all that sort of stuff. Whereas mm -hmm. in this era, not as much the case, you know, I don't know that when they were making the fugitive a few years before this, uh, the original mission impossible, they were like, how many nods to the TV show can we fit in? I, I don't think very many. I mean, we've had Andrew Davis on and we didn't ask about that. But we probably should have. Yeah, probably. Probably we were sleeping on the job there. Um, but one thing I thought was really interesting too was often with films you hear about how there was, say, a lot of problems and they had to find it in the editing room. Mm -hmm. And that was one thing I was very curious about with the first Mission Impossible was just finding that balance between the action and the plot that he talked about how a lot of people complained it was confusing. Mm. I remember actually for me, it was, it does stand out in that it was one of the first movies that my friends and I really became obsessed with and would watch over and over again, trying to like piece together the plot. And it's not like when I watch it now, the plot's not that complicated, No, but it felt, it felt smarter than I think a lot of the blockbusters. And he referenced Twister 
at the time, but also Independence Day was in 96, Eraser, the Schwarzenegger film. Mm. Mission Impossible felt like it was asking a little more of the audience, which I think was something that really worked in its favor. And a attitude you would see like Christopher Nolan had when he's doing, say, The Dark Knight. Like you're asking something of the audience, but they are paying off your investment. And uh, it was just interesting to me how it seemed like that was very well mapped out. That was not the sort of thing that kind of was happened upon by accident. And I think one thing that helps us is maybe the fact that we study spy movies now. Maybe maybe we're just so like ingrained in this world that we can watch this film and be like, oh, this all makes perfect sense. But I wonder what the experience would be like if I sat my mother down to watch this film. And I wonder if she would tell me that it is confusing. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but also, he worked on Ghost Protocol. Yeah. It, it's one of the only people to sort of have a, a continuity of the Christopher, Christopher McQuarrie is sort of had a continuity going but I think you were telling me earlier that the idea of these films was to have a whole new team every time and a new vision so it's interesting that Brad Bird the director of Ghost Protocol actually wanted to have the original editor come back because he wanted to keep that editing style from the first film I think it's probably a good choice uh, but a completely different dynamic between the two of them yeah, it was really interesting to hear him talk about working with Brad Bird because Brad Bird came from the world of animation mm. and just his approach to storytelling would be very different because animation is so meticulous and takes years. Like, you know, Brad Bird, who had done Iron Giant, The Incredibles, those movies, they just like fine tool as precisely as possible over a long period of time. So I can understand his obsession with the details over the bigger picture in a way. Sure, But it yeah. was interesting to hear how like the two approaches to Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol were quite different in terms of the editor and the director. But the final mm. results, you can't argue with. Nope, you can't. I mean, many would say Mission Impossible 3 is a turning point, but a lot would also point to 4 is where it really finds its kind of the formula of what it looks to. Now, like 4 for a lot of people is the gold finger of the Mission Impossibles. Yeah. I really do love part four, and I remember that was the one. I really enjoyed three, but I mm. recall four being the one that got me really excited about the franchise continuing. Yeah, I, I think that there's an escalation in scale from the fourth one onwards where that really starts to ramp up. But we're talking about a film that we haven't spoken about yet. I suppose overall, it just it, it, it never ceases to amaze me, and I, I constantly try to humble myself of, of just the luck that we have when it comes to guests. Yeah, no kidding. It's not often you get to speak to people that are, are involved in your favorite films. And the fact that we get to tie that into a conversation of a film we both enjoy talking about as well, and just to hear some stories about how that was put together, I think is is absolutely invaluable. And it's one of the reasons that I still love doing this podcast three years later. It's one of the gifts of the spy movie uh, genre is that when you track kind of the history of these movies and talk to the people associated with them, it ties into all these other various elements of the history of film. So like we may be talking about Mission Impossible, but you know, the editor, Paul Hirsch, Star Wars, you know, Empire Strikes Back, Ferris Bueller, like there's all these other movies that they worked on. So you get to not just cover the stuff that we are focused on within the genre mm. of this podcast, but all these other amazing films that have shaped our enthusiasm of film as a whole. Well, you go back to our first, I guess, Mission Impossible interview many moons ago now with Dan Mindell, who was the cinematographer of Mission Impossible 3 as well as Spy Game. Yeah. But he also worked on Star Trek, and that's where our love 
it sort of is and, and how our connection first started. So it's always nice to have these opportunities to sort of dig into people's filmographies. And I'm always glad that people will have time to talk to us about it. Yeah, and actually Dan Mandel also from Star Wars did Force Awakens. But uh, yeah, an absolutely wonderful chat. I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, I'm glad we're finally here, Cam. It's about damn time. That's right. But uh, the question goes to you, sir. What are we looking at next week? We are going to be looking at the 1975 Clint Eastwood espionage thriller, The Iger Sanction. Yes, yes, yes. Stick on your snow boots. We're going to go climb a mountain with Clint. I'm looking forward to it. So your mission, folks, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we tackle 1975's The Iger Sanction. A good year for spy films. I think Three Days of the Condor came out the same year. That is correct, yeah. Like, mm. the 70s, not a, like, huge decade for spy movies, but some of the really, really great ones came out of this decade. Yeah, yeah. Man with the Golden Gun, too. <laughs> of course. One of the all-timers, yes. And if you like what you heard on this interview this week, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, hasta lasagna. Don't get any on you.